0: You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery Series, episode 102. Today, I talk with Dr. Andrea Austin. She is an emergency room physician and the host of the Revitalizing Doctor podcast. She interviewed me for part one of this two-part episode, and today I'm interviewing her. She talks about how important it is to diversify our careers. She had a toxic job where she discovered how important this lesson actually was. For more information about the Boss Business of Surgery series. Welcome back. I have a wonderful guest today. This is Dr. Andrea Austin. This is part two of our interview because part one is housed on her podcast, The Revitalizing Doctor. So I will make sure to have a link in the show notes for you to hear the first part of this. So Dr. Austin, I know that you are a former navy emergency room physician and now currently working on a master's degree and you do a lot of work in the simulation lab, but there's just so much more to all of your interests which is exactly the point of all this of how we should not be putting all of our eggs in one basket. And I think especially in emergency medicine, I know that that is true. So I'm so excited to hear about your story and your perspectives, because I really do think that you have the answer that a lot of us need to start thinking about when it comes to how do we manage ourselves in these changing times in medicine? Because it's like the Wild West out there.
1: (laughs) It totally is. And you and I share a military background. And as you alluded to, I was in the Navy, and I got out in 2020, which, you know, in retrospect, that was a tough time to leave, and maybe it would have been better if I had stayed a little longer, but... It taught me a lot coming out of the military in 2020. So like many people, I thought I knew exactly what I wanted. I had been in academics in my military career. I wanted an academic job in Southern California, lined it up, started during the pandemic. Everything seemed great on paper. And when I started working there, I just realized it just wasn't working. It just wasn't fitting. And it was hard to figure out when you're in a situation, is this me? Is it the place? Is it my specialty? And I honestly couldn't figure out how to sort it out, staying in that position. And so I decided to leave. And, you know, how do you decide to leave and having that courage Part of it was having a safety net. And while we had savings, which I was comfortable with, my husband was very supportive and awesome. I took a position with the Naval Postgraduate School teaching an online program. And my salary with that was split when I was teaching courses. So I would have more money during the summer. And I thought, great, I'm going to take a sabbatical. I'm going to teach this online course. I'm not going to work clinical shifts. I'm going to regulate my sleep because that year I had worked a ton of night shifts. And night shifts are very deceptive because I was getting enough sleep on paper. But we all know that you actually don't get the same amount of REM, even if you're getting the same number of hours. And REM is really important for our overall health, including our emotional well being, which now, as I'm like looking back on that period during the height of the pandemic, we actually process emotional trauma while we're sleeping. So now looking back, it's crystal clear that there were many things that were working against me in that position. So I took the summer off. I start working doing online teaching for the Naval Postgrad School. I read tons of books, and I focused really on emotional trauma. I I read What Happened to You by Dr. Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey.
0: Fantastic book.
1: Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, something's happened to me. Actually, looking back at my life, several things have happened. Came home, we're both veterans, came home from Iraq. A year later, the pandemic happened. So not really surprising in retrospect that I was dealing with some trauma Not the trauma I was used to and comfortable in the trauma bay, but this emotional stuff. And once I started to get a handle on how to process that and talked with a lot of people, I was like, I think I actually do still want to be an emergency doctor, but I've got to go back into it differently. And I had gone through coaching around the same time and got clear on my values, started to get clear on boundaries, which I think medicine really strips us of a lot of boundaries. And once you're out of the military, it's like, oh, wait a minute. I can quit a job. I can say if I'm in a per diem position, actually, I'm not available to work night shifts. There's all sorts of constraints you can can put. And once I went back in with that mindset, I started to piece together a practice that worked. And really, it was all per diem jobs. And then via Twitter, now X, uh, one of my residents, who is now in attending, messaged me and said, hey, we're looking for a sim director. Do you know anyone? And I said, well, I know me. <laughs> you want to tell me about the job? Um, and everything just fell into place that I'm the sim- simulation director for Southwest Healthcare, um, our sim labs in Temecula, California, and we have about 12 residencies and fellowships. We're building our simulation lab. It's very innovative. And I still get to work at the Naval Postgraduate School. And then I still work clinically a little bit. So a really long explanation. But but that's the many hats I wear. And I haven't even touched Revitalize, but we'll get to that later.
0: Yes, it's basically leading exactly into the whole point of what we were talking about before, about how you really can't just choose one path i mean you could and if you're lucky that, that that path will work but it sounds like you had early on this idea that maybe i should have my ears open for all kinds of different opportunities was that a conscious thing or was it just something that just developed over time
1: i think during residency it's so funny you start residency and you're so eager and so excited you can't possibly think that you'd want to do anything but see patients all the time. And towards the end of residency, I started to kind of see that, hey, wait a minute, I'm hearing from pretty much everybody that you have to start building an exit plan, that this is a hard specialty, even just looking at the circadian shift thing, which you don't think is a big deal in your 20s. You're like, oh, night shifts, that's great. And then you start to see the toll that it, that will take. So I got a sense that I got to start thinking what I'm going to do. And I knew I liked to teach. So that was, you know, no brainer. Okay. I'll do academics, but then it's like, what are you going to do in academics? And then I thought about who are the attendings that I liked and respected the most. And it ended up being the people doing simulation because they knew how to handle all the crazy scenarios, all the halo, high acuity, low occurrence events like crikes and resuscitative hysterotomies. And I didn't want to do a, a critical care fellowship because the joke is, and I know there's way more to it. I was like, I don't want to be on rounds talking about tube feedings. where, <laughs> where Sim, I don't talk about tube feedings. I get to do all the exciting things. And it's like all this creativity too. You know, I, I I essentially, I orchestrate a play every, you know, simulation day with different rooms and different sets and moulage, which is medical makeup. And there's so much to it. I mean, there's a business aspect. It's very collaborative. I, I mean, I get to work with my surgeons at Navy Trauma Training Center. I had the best, my favorite people to work with were, were the trauma surgeons and general surgeons. And I love that. So thankfully, it really, really worked out. And I want more and more of my career to go in that route. I mean, at this point, I'm doing clinical stuff to really just keep enough credibility that I'm seeing enough cases that when I debrief somebody in the sim lab, what I'm saying makes sense. But it it's certainly been a, a great ride.
0: Yeah, there's definitely something to be said for staying relevant in that, because I think when it comes to simulation, I mean, really should... Be from someone who understands, you know, all the things because it's not a cookbook that we have here.
1: <laughs> no, I have a phrase for that. So, you know, certainly, obviously, there's great respect for guidelines, ACLS, ATLS. But I tell my EM residents, the whole reason you're going to residency is to go off roading. You got to know <laughs> the algorithm, and you got to go. I want. I love off roading. That's the best part of my job. I'm not worried about AI. Because the complexity, the decisions that we make, seeing the gray, that's why you're in residency.
0: Right. So- Take me through a little bit about what it's like to be an emergency room physician these days, because I know in the state of Tennessee, we've had disruptions because of private equity takeovers of some groups that have then folded. I think two very large ones in multiple state, yeah. uh, multiple state groups have declared bankruptcy. And I, I've heard that a third in our state is close to it as well. So what is it like out there?
1: Let's see, it's the best of times and it's the worst of times is is, is what I would say. And I'm very thoughtful in, in how I'm going to answer this question. I'm going to be honest about it because our medical students are listening and you probably know and some of the listeners listening that EM had a very disappointing match last year. We went from when I was matching into EM, it was one of the most, if not the most, competitive specialty because it was the coolest place to work with the best lifestyle. And last year we had substantial number of spots that went unfilled because our medical students saw what was happening during the pandemic. They saw how under-resourced we were. And long story, the workforce report pre-pandemic said that there was going to be a surplus of EM physicians, which is far from the case right right now huge amount of attrition during the pandemic, early retirements and people doing other things like me. I only work six to eight shifts a month right now. Um, But I do say the best of times and the worst of times. I have many friends because of where they want to live that work for private equity. I have worked for some of the, the companies that will go unnamed right now, but you can Google who the two largest private equity groups are in, in the, the country. I mean, Envision and Team Health, I'll just say it. We, we know who they are. I am far from an infomercial from Team Health. My experience was fine. A lot of what happens in an emergency department is dependent on the local leadership, What I would like to see our specialty get to is private equity is probably here to stay in some way, which is very upsetting to many people. But what we need to get to is a place that we're talking about behaviors. And that's why I'm working with the American College of Emergency Physicians is we have to start accrediting emergency departments, just like we accredit trauma centers and say, I'm a great emergency department physician. I I can MacGyver a lot, but we have to start saying, this is what we need. Just like you in the operating room wouldn't start a case without having certain personnel and certain equipment available. You would say, I'm sorry, we're not able to do this elective case today because I don't have whatever piece of critical equipment, um, a retractor. <laughs> you know, We have never said that really in emergency medicine. We've never said like, this is the staffing that we need. This is the equipment that we need. It's not uncommon for you to show up to an ER and it's like, where's this uh, slit lamp? Where's a tono pen for me to check ocular pressures? Oh, I don't know. We don't have that. Or we did it's broken. So we're always kind of MacGyvering. So that's why I say it's the worst of times. There's a, there's a lot of bad actors out there. There's a lot of people abusing us, but it's the best of times because I I truly do believe that we're starting to see some some leadership. We're starting to see from the younger generation pushing us towards some better practices. And I am excited with some of the initiatives coming out from our college.
0: That's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I do wonder if the pendulum has swung far enough to where we can start like going back the other way again that'd be really nice.
1: Wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think my message and I was really blown away by, have you read Wendy Dean's book? If I betray these
0: moral injury. Yes. She's actually on the podcast a few episodes ago.
1: Oh, good. She came to our women's group for the American Association of Women Emergency Physicians. And she had this phrase, and I don't know if she said it on your podcast of we need to start standing on our square. We have to start having boundaries and saying. And, you know, I think if people go and listen to the last episode when you left your the group practice and started your own practice, that was a courageous act. And I think more of us have to have courageous acts. And I know you can't do it alone. You've got to have support, whether that's through you, other communities, what we're doing at Revitalize, you've got to have your nest egg. You've got to have things that enable you to be courageous. But physicians and surgeons, if we left and didn't go into work tomorrow, it would all come to a grinding halt. We do need to work as a team and we need to be collaborative, but we also need to lay down some boundaries about this is not safe and I will not do X, Y, and Z because it's, it's compromising patient care and my ethics, and I won't do this. And if enough of us do it, they're going to have to change.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's the ability to, to bind together, I think is, is a real uh, important aspect for us to consider. It's just really hard to do that. You know, that we can't exactly strike um, without putting patients at risk, which And the whole idea of like, we should first do no harm. Of course, no one wants to hurt anyone and we are necessary. And this is basically what I'm saying. We're necessary in this arrangement of patient care. And we can't really strike from that perspective. But I mentioned it before that one of our options is free agency. And I think that's what a lot of people are choosing is some going into private practice, although it's challenging, especially with decreasing reimbursement and such. But to be able to kind of buck the system and say, "Well, I'm not going to stay at this hospital; I'll go to another one. I'm not going to stay in this job; I'm going to do this." I'll, those are the the small courageous acts that added up over time may help the pendulum swing. But also stepping up into the leadership tables and insisting that our societies do something and things like that. But it's just it's difficult when we're already short-staffed everywhere to have a coordinated effort. I think that's where the challenges are So the patient safety and the ability to coordinate efforts is where a lot of our challenges are.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've, I've really had my faith in the system renewed in my current position And thankfully the good mentors in the military. I I learned if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Mm -hmm. And then I needed to work myself into more of these meetings. And one of the first meetings I went to was the Code Blue committee. And I was invited by one of the nurse leaders and said, We'd like you there. We'd like to start some code blues, mock code blues in the hospital. I didn't know, I didn't know what to expect. I, I was a couple minutes late. I huddled into the back of the room like just observing what's going on. And within minutes, it was apparent I was the only physician in the room. And with halfway through the meeting, I was like, I'm not going to talk. I'm just going to listen this meeting. They're ushering me to the front and asking me, they were craving physician leadership, absolutely craving it. So I, I, this is kind of, I'm going to kind of turn it back to you because an observance that I see with, a lot of, frankly, my surgeons is they're working so much. They have so much to give with their intellect and their leadership. How do we get them to be more involved, which, you know, I get it. They could probably do another case and make triple, quadruple, whatever at being at that code blue committee meeting. But I don't know, for me, it's paying dividends that's given me a lot more meaning and purpose in my work. I feel a lot more connected and that I actually can make some changes happen at work because I had been in so many toxic environments that I'm like, yeah, it's all crap. I can't do anything. And now I'm here and I'm like, hold, hold on. They're like, oh, Dr. Austin's walking into the room and let's get her opinion on what may have happened in this code. And my sense of agency is just skyrocketed, but turning back to you, how do we get more of our doctors and surgeons into these meetings?
0: Well, I think that it's a good question. I mean, I've never really hesitated to join meetings and step up and and all too, because I like to get involved and like to see how things work, but I do think that it's, difficult to break away from when you're pulled in lots of different directions. And I think that's the biggest challenge is that it has to be worthwhile. It has to be honored. It has to be a little bit surgeon centric when it comes to that too, of we're there to offer insight and leadership, but but we cannot do a lot of the smaller things too. So I don't know if all hospitals are set this way, or if I've just been very lucky in a lot of the things that I've done. So being in the D.C. area, I was very lucky that in the military, leadership was expected, and we were involved in a lot of things. So we had a culture of getting involved. Then when I came to this smaller hospital, there's less people around, and so the leadership is a smaller, so there was a lot more collaborative things. So uh, I may not be the best person to answer this because I've always been involved, but it's it's been throughout the culture, of both the military that I was in and the current hospital that I'm in. So... That's the the main thing as you're asking the question, trying to say like, what is it that is appealing to me? And some of the meetings that I don't feel like I contribute anything to, I just, I find completely, utterly pointless, but when there's some things that I know that they need my input on, I don't mind speaking up. I can think of a mass casualty committee that I was on where everything just basically ran. They had a lot of support staff. And just like you said, they just craved physician leadership. So I would actually just come and not for a long period of time. And they would basically present what they thought. And I would say, well, let's run through this and offer the perspective of the running through the real life, real life scenario of that. And then we were able to make some tweaks from that too. But it wasn't me starting from the beginning or feeling like I was carrying it and things like that. So we do have to rely a lot on the non-physician leadership and And great groups of people to work through a lot of the logistics. So we are only out entering on our expert opinion. We're not doing everything because it's just not feasible to do our job and some of these other jobs as well. I don't know if that actually answered your question. I hope that it did.
1: I think it's a good one. I mean, that's a good point that I 100% agree. And I think certainly with your boss series, you, you get into this, that you go through medical training and residency and you're taught you have to do everything. You have to understand every single part of this. And and, and that, I think, I, I see attending struggle with that. Like, actually, you don't. you You have expertise. Give your expert opinion. It's not that any of these jobs are beneath you. They're not. That's not what it's about. There's just a finite amount of time. And I also need to develop other people, right? I recognize what I can do in my sim lab and what I can contribute to the Code Blue Committee. And I need to also leave room for other people to self-actualize and work at their highest end as well. Even though that I could probably do a lot of what they could do, I need to step back and give them room. Yeah,
0: and I think it's all in the dynamic of the group, because I've just been fortunate in the groups that I've been where the dynamics have usually worked well. I think that the feedback that I've heard from people through coaching is that when they go to these meetings, they're somewhat dismissed as the surgeon. Like you're, you're just the surgeon, which is interesting to where like, we, we know all this and they don't actually want the input or they're threatened by the input. And it ends up being a dynamic that does not work. And so rather than a collaborative one of mutual respect, it becomes a antagonistic one of like, why are you here? We don't need you is the message that I think some people are getting. And that is where it can be a little bit frustrating because why on earth would you volunteer for that meeting?
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, no. I mean, I think that's definitely... And I, I think that's the quintessential question for everybody, right? And in, in what was very helpful for me during the pandemic was Brene Brown had a, a podcast that came out and they went through the toxic, signs of a toxic workplace. And mm-hmm. essentially it was lack of inclusivity, cutthroat culture, unethical behavior. There was a couple others. And so then I was like, oh, now I have this list That's very clear that, again, not that cutthroat behavior could happen, you don't need to leave a job, but the response to that and Mm -hmm. what is the overarching vibe when these behaviors are not one-offs, but really running in the culture Then you've got to really ask yourself if that's where you need to be and what's that doing to your soul and honestly, your overall health. I mean, I, one toxic place I could feel that I was having like chest pain and I'm like, man, if this was 10 years from now, I might actually be concerned that this was an actual cardiac event. This place is like I'm reacting to on like a physiologic level. So I would guide listeners to, to look to that, that there are some really bad behaviors that if you're not seeing quick change happening, and I had learned from being at some of these toxic places to not even say like, hey, this happened. And, and as I gained more trust where I am now, the rare time something would happen, I bring it up. They were like, oh my gosh, we, we can't believe that that consultant said that or did that. We got it we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. And we're so sorry. And I'm like, Oh, it took me, took me like six months to work up the courage to start to bring up problems because I was so used to being squashed.
0: Mm-hmm. I can imagine. And I'm sure it's kind of like the frog in the boiling water, right? When you increase the heat a little bit at a time, and all of a sudden you're like, how on earth did I end up here?
1: So true. Absolutely true.
0: And so how did actually, that's a really good question. How did you recover after being in a toxic workplace? So now you're the frog in the boiling water and you wonder how on earth did I get here? How did you recover from that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it was multimodal. So I I got a therapist and we actually used EMDR. Are you familiar with that? Vaguely. Vaguely. So it's eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. It sounds utterly bizarre, but it <laughs> actually has a great scientific background. We're both veterans and the VA has, this is the most effective treatment for PTSD out there.
0: How long did you, were you in therapy and in, in the treatment? Like, like what would someone expect? Like an average, I know it's an unfair question, an average, like, let's say someone who realize like, I am just overwhelmed. Like what would be their expected path beyond that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely individual based. For me, it was, it took about one, well, honestly, about two months, I think, for the sleep debt to go away. And for me, and I think our listeners, once you finally recover from sleep debt, for me, my clarity just shot up. I was like, oh, I'm back. Now I can, I I have creativity. I, my optimism's coming back. I'm much, all these problems seem much more solvable because I'm thinking clearly. So that was huge. The therapist was great. There was some stuff from deployment, obviously, the pandemic, medical training, all of that. So, kind of getting through that and down to a level that it's like maintenance and then coaching. I, Just went back in and uh, did a six-month burnout program with Sheree Johnson called Recalibrate, which was really, really helpful. And I think the biggest thing that I would say to the listeners out there is many of them will know Carol Dweck's work, The Growth Mindset, Fixed Mindset. I've always been like, oh, I got this. I'm a growth person. Somewhere along the way, I had developed a fixed mindset that I would never not feel burned out and that there was something broken, something wrong with me. And finally it dawned on me one day that like, oh, I have a fixed mindset about this aspect of me. What happens if I had a growth mindset that my brain can change? There's neuroplasticity. I can learn new things. I can do more meditation. I can learn more about how to process my emotion And just like everything else that I've done in my life, I too can learn new skills to come at being an emergency physician, despite the really challenging situation that we have. And the last thing I'll say is my coach said to me, the answer that I have about whether I'll be an emergency physician, I'm allowed to change it. I've decided right now it's working. But there's a series of things that could happen, some in my control, some outside of my control that that answer may change. And so being okay to be more in that uncertainty space and that I'm going to be okay, no matter if I'm practicing clinical emergency medicine or not, I'm going to be okay, I think has been like the the biggest thing. So it's very circuitous answer. (laughs)
0: No, no, I mean, I was following completely, and I would 100% agree with you. And I think that this goes back to the main point that we've been talking about, which is, when we diversify, we're basically saying that we have the ability to do multiple different things, and multiple paths are open to us. And And I work with surgeons all the time on this, this idea of being a surgeon is your identity. And the danger of that, of course, is if it goes away, or if you end up in a toxic job and you've tied yourself to this, then no wonder you would think that you could not get past that. So... I think that the idea of diversification is also the de-identifying with any particular job is that we don't hang who we are on one of those paths, which I think that is probably where a lot of the reassurance comes from. Not so much the choices that we have, because I would argue as physicians, we have unlimited pathways because of our transferable skills that we have paid very dearly with our time and our money to get. So our transferable skills are what leads us to have the ability to diversify. I think it's the de-identification of us in our job is where this diversification really gives us the freedom.
1: 100%. You know, that practicing that phrase, I practice emergency medicine, not I am an emergency physician, and it just lets you hold it a little bit lighter and allows for things to, to change throughout your career. So it's huge. It's, it's been life changing and it starts to change the mindset of I get to practice emergency medicine. I haven't done a shift in like two weeks and I have a shift at 6am tomorrow and I'm kind of excited. I'm like, Oh, I've been doing Sims the last week. I got, I'm going to get in there. I'm going to get back into the arena and, and I get to practice emergency medicine. I get to teach my residents tomorrow morning.
0: Yeah, I think that just the exercise of being willing to let it go is actually what allows us to enjoy it because now we don't have to hold it onto it so tightly and, you know, basically suffocated.
1: Exactly. 100%.
0: (laughs) Yes. So, well, this has been really great. I mean, I think that you have so much to offer when it comes to the reasons why we should diversify uh, our career paths and, you know, that with the changing times in medicine and all the things that could happen, you, the the jobs that we land, which are either good or not good, the ability to shift and pivot and move in, in different ways, I think is a really great lesson that we all need to know. So take me through a little bit about what you do and where people can find you and all the things.
1: Yeah, so we didn't get into it very much, but I think that the best way people could connect with me is through our platform called Revitalized Women Physician Circle, we founded Revitalize, me and my colleague, Dr. Linda Lawrence, to be a community in which physicians can come together, women physicians or people who identify as women. And our goal is to really create gender parity in medicine, break through the, the leadership hurdles that we have. And we envision a day that women can show up to work as their authentic self that they can have work-life harmony and they have respect in the workplace. And one of the ways we're doing this is an online community. So people can go to peoplealwayshcc.com slash revitalize and learn about our community. They can find me on Instagram, X threads at revitalizing doc. And then I have a podcast called The Revitalizing Doctor. And I chose that verb Because I want to emphasize, even though it's a mouthful, that we are always changing. You're never stuck. And we got to keep revitalizing. And we will revitalize medicine to be what we had all dreamed it could be. We gave so much to attain this training. And it breaks my heart. When I have doctors hating their jobs, it breaks my heart when patients say, I hate my doctor. I always want to know what's, what's behind that. I want to meet that doctor because they're probably being abused. And I want people to feel that agency and empowered and join us in, in the community and we'll do it together. It's that collective power that you were alluding to. You can't do it on your own. You, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely exhausting. You don't have all the knowledge you need. You don't have the network and you can't possibly have been through every potential weird thing that happens to doctors. So within that community, there's going to be somebody they're either going to have the firsthand or they're going to say, wait a minute, I know how we can help, help you. So yeah, that that's us at Revitalize.
0: And I know that austinmd.com is the hub for all these because I can see the links for all of them right up there.
1: (laughs) Yes. Oh, I see. I didn't say my own website. So yes, if you go to andreaaustinmd.com, you'll find everything, including some stuff about simulation.
0: Perfect. And and again, part one of this uh, interview started on the Revitalizing Doctor podcast. So look out for that episode as well.
1: Yay. Thank you, Dr. Vertice. This has been an absolute pleasure
0: and privilege to be with you. Likewise. Thank you so much for coming. For more information on the BOSS Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.